Chapter 8 Flies and Spiders Part 2 If it had been difficult collecting themselves before, it was far worse this time. And they simply could not find the Hobbit. Every time they counted themselves, it only made 13. They shouted and called, Bilbo Baggins! Hobbit! You dratted Hobbit! Hi! Hobbit! Confusticate you! Where are you? And other things of that sort, but there was no answer. They were just giving up hope when Dory stumbled across him by sheer luck. In the dark, he fell over what he thought was a log, and he found it was the Hobbit curled up fast asleep. It took a deal of shaking to wake him, and when he was awake, he was not pleased at all. I was having such a lovely dream, he grumbled. All about having a most gorgeous dinner. Good heavens, he's gone like Bomber, they said. Don't tell us about dreams. Dream dinners aren't any good, and we can't share them. They're the best I'm likely to get in this beastly place, he muttered as he lay down beside the dwarves and tried to go back to sleep and find his dream again. But that was not the last of the lights in the forest. Later, when the night must have been getting old, Keeley, who was watching then, came and roused them all, saying, There's a regular blaze of light begun not far away. Hundreds of torches and many fires must have been lit suddenly and by magic. And hark to the singing and the harps! After lying and listening for a while, they found they could not resist the desire to go nearer and try once more to get help. Up they got again, and this time the result was disastrous. The feast that they now saw was greater and more magnificent than before, and at the head of a long line of feasters sat a woodland king with a crown of leaves upon his golden hair very much as Bomber had described the figure in his dream. The elvish folk were passing bowls from hand to hand, and across the fires. And some were harping and many were singing. Their gleaming hair was twined with flowers, green and white gems glinted on their collars and their belts, and their faces and their songs were filled with mirth. Loud and clear and fair were those songs, and out-stepped Thorin into their midst. Dead silence fell in the middle of a word. Out went all light. The fires leaped up in black smokes. Ashes and cinders were in the eyes of the dwarves, and the wood was filled again with their clamour and their cries. Bilbo found himself running round and round, as he thought, and calling and calling, Dory! Nori! Ori! Oin, Gloin, Feely Keely, Bomber, Beefer, Bofer, Dwalin, Balin, Thorin Oakenshield. While people he could not see or feel were doing the same all round him, with an occasional Bilbo thrown in. But the cries of the others got steadily further and fainter, and though after a while it seemed to him they changed to yells and cries for help in the far distance, all noise at last died right away and he was left alone in complete silence and darkness. 
That was one of his most miserable moments. But he soon made up his mind that it was no good trying to do anything till day came with some little light, and quite useless to go blundering about tiring himself out with no hope of any breakfast to revive him. So he sat himself down with his back to a tree, and not for the last time fell to thinking of his far distant hobbit hole with its beautiful pantries. He was deep in thoughts of bacon and eggs and toast and butter when he felt something touch him. Something like a strong, sticky string was against his left hand, and when he tried to move he found that his legs were already wrapped in the same stuff, so that when he got up he fell over. Then the great spider, who had been busy tying him up while he dozed, came from behind him and came at him. He could only see the thing's eyes, but he could feel its hairy legs as it struggled to wind its abominable threads round and round him. It was lucky that he'd come to his senses in time. Soon he would not have been able to move at all. As it was, he had a desperate fight before he got free. He beat the creature off with his hands. It was trying to poison him to keep him quiet, as small spiders do to flies, until he remembered his sword and drew it out. Then the spider jumped back, and he had time to cut his legs loose. After that, it was his turn to attack. The spider evidently was not used to things that carried such stings at their sides, or it would have hurried away quicker. Bilbo came at it before it could disappear and stuck it with his sword right in the eyes. Then it went mad and leaped and danced and flung out its legs in horrible jerks until he killed it with another stroke. And then he fell down and remembered nothing more for a long while. There was the usual dim grey light of the forest day about him when he came to his senses. The spider lay dead beside him and his sword blade was stained black. Somehow, the killing of the giant spider, all alone by himself in the dark without the help of the wizard or the dwarves or of anyone else, made a great difference to Mr. Baggins. He felt a different person, and much fiercer and bolder in spite of an empty stomach, as he wiped his sword on the grass and put it back into its sheath. "'I'll give you a name,' he said to it, "'and I shall call you... Sting.' After that, he set out to explore. The forest was grim and silent, but obviously he had first of all to look for his friends, who were not likely to be very far off unless they'd been made prisoners by the elves, or worse things. Bilbo felt that it was unsafe to shout, and he stood a long while wondering in what direction the path lay, and in what direction he should go first to look for the dwarves. Oh, why did we not remember Bayorn's advice and Gandalf's, he lamented. What a mess we're in now. We. I only wish it was we. It's horrible being all alone. In the end, he made as good a guess as he could at the direction from which the cries for help had come in the night. And by luck, he was born with a good share of it. He guessed more or less right, as you will see. Having made up his mind, he crept along as cleverly as he could. Hobbits are clever at quietness, especially in woods, as I've already told you. Also, Bilbo had slipped on his ring before he started. That's why the spiders neither saw 
nor heard him coming. He'd picked his way stealthily for some distance, when he noticed a place of dense black shadow ahead of him, black even for that forest, like a patch of midnight that had never been cleared away. As he drew nearer, he saw that it was made by spiderwebs, one behind and over and tangled with another. Suddenly he saw, too, that there were spiders, huge and horrible, sitting in the branches above him, and ring or no ring, he trembled with fear lest they should discover him. Standing behind a tree, he watched a group of them for some time, and then in the silence and stillness of the wood, he realised that these loathsome creatures were speaking one to another. Their voices were a sort of thin, creaking and hissing, but he could make out many of the words that they said. They were talking about the dwarves. It was a sharp struggle, but worth it, said one. What nasty thick skins they have, to be sure. But I'll wager there is good juice inside. Aye, they'll make a fine eating when they've hung a bit, said another. Don't hang them too long, said a third. They're not as far as they might be. Been feeding none too well of late, I should guess. Kill em, I say, hissed a fourth. Kill em now and hang em dead for a while. They're dead now, I'll warrant, said the first. That they are not. I saw one a-struggling just now. Just coming round again, I should say. After a beautiful sleep. I'll show you. With that, one of the fat spiders ran along a rope till it came to a dozen bundles hanging in a row from a high branch. Bilbo was horrified, now that he noticed them for the first time dangling in the shadows, to see a dwarvish foot sticking out of the bottoms of some of the bundles, or here and there the tip of a nose, or a bit of beard, or of a hood. To the fattest of these bundles the spider went. It's poor old Bomber, I'll bet, thought Bilbo and nipped hard at the nose that stuck out. There was a muffled yelp inside, and a toe shot up and kicked the spider straight and hard. There was life in Bomber still. There was a noise like the kicking of a flabby football, and the enraged spider fell off the branch, only catching itself with its own thread just in time. The others laughed. You were quite right, they said. The meat's alive and kicking... I'll soon put an end to that, hissed the angry spider, climbing back onto the branch. Bilbo saw that the moment had come when he must do something. He could not get up at the brutes, and he had nothing to shoot with. But looking about, he saw that in this place there were many stones lying in what appeared to be a now dry little watercourse. Bilbo was a pretty fair shot with a stone and it did not take him long to find a nice, smooth, egg-shaped one that fitted his hand cosily. As a boy, he used to practice throwing stones at things, until rabbits and squirrels and even birds got out of his way as quick as lightning if they saw him stoop. And even grown up, he'd still spent a deal of his time at quoits, dart-throwing, shooting at the wand, bowls, nine-pins, and other quiet games of the aiming and throwing sort. 
Indeed, he could do lots of things, besides blowing smoke rings, asking riddles and cooking, that I haven't had time to tell you about. There is no time now. While he was picking up stones, the spider had reached Bomber, and soon he would have been dead. At that moment, Bilbo threw. The stone struck the spider plunk on the head, and it dropped senseless off the tree, flopped to the ground with all its legs curled up. The next stone went whizzing through a big web, snapping its cords and taking off the spider sitting in the middle of it. Whack! Dead! After that there was a deal of commotion in the spider colony, and they forgot the dwarfs for a bit, I can tell you. They could not see Bilbo, but they could make a good guess at the direction from which the stones were coming. As quick as lightning they came running and swinging towards the hobbit, flinging out their long threads in all directions till the air seemed full of waving snares. Bilbo, however, soon slipped away to a different place. The idea came to him to lead the furious spiders further and further away from the dwarves, if he could, to make them curious, excited, and angry all at once. When about fifty had gone off to the place where he'd stood before, he threw some more stones at these, and at others that had stopped behind, then, dancing among the trees, he began to sing a song to infuriate them and bring them all after him, and also to let the dwarves hear his voice. This is what he sang. Old fat spider spinning in a tree, old fat spider can't see me. Attercop, attercop, won't you stop? Stop your spinning and look for me. Old Tom Noddy, all big body, old Tom Noddy can't spy me. Attercop, attercop, down you drop. You'll never catch me up your tree. Not very good, perhaps, but then you must remember that he had to make it up himself, on the spur of a very awkward moment. It did what he wanted, anyway. As he sang, he threw some more stones and stamped. Practically all the spiders in the place came after him. Some dropped to the ground, others raced along the branches, swung from tree to tree, or cast new ropes across the dark spaces. They made for his noise far quicker than he had expected. They were frightfully angry. Quite apart from the stones, no spider has ever liked being called Atacop, and Tom Noddy, of course, is insulting to anybody. Off Bilbo scuttled to a fresh place but several of the spiders had run now to different points in the glade where they lived, and were busy spinning webs across all the spaces between the tree stems. Very soon the hobbit would be caught in a thick fence of them all round him. That at least was the spider's idea. Standing now in the middle of the hunting and spinning insects, Bilbo plucked up his courage and began a new song. Lazy lob and crazy cob are weaving webs to wind me. I am far more sweet than other meat, but still they cannot find me. Here I am, naughty little fly. You are fat and lazy. You cannot trap me, though you try, in your cobwebs crazy. With that, he turned and found that the last space between two tall trees had been closed with a web. But luckily... Not a proper web. Only great strands of double-thick spider rope run hastily backwards and forwards from trunk to trunk. 
Out came his little sword. He slashed the threads to pieces and went off singing. The spider saw the sword, though I don't suppose they knew what it was, and at once the whole lot of them came hurrying after the hobbit along the ground and the branches, hairy legs waving, nippers and spinners snapping, eyes popping full of froth and rage. They followed him into the forest until Bilbo had gone as far as he dared. Then, quieter than a mouse, he stole back. He had precious little time, he knew, before the spiders were disgusted and came back to their trees where the dwarves were hung. In the meanwhile, he had to rescue them. The worst part of the job was getting up onto the long branch where the bundles were dangling. I don't suppose he would have managed it if a spider had not luckily left a rope hanging down. With its help, though it stuck to his hand and hurt him, he scrambled up. Only to meet an old, slow, wicked, fat-bodied spider who had remained behind to guard the prisoners and had been busy pinching them to see which was the juiciest to eat. It had thought of starting the feast while the others were away, but Mr. Baggins was in a hurry, and before the spider knew what was happening, it felt his sting and rolled off the branch dead. Bilbo's next job was to loose a dwarf. What was he to do? If he cut the string which hung him up, the wretched dwarf would tumble thump to the ground a good way below. Wriggling along the branch which made all the poor dwarves dance and dangle like ripe fruit, he reached the first bundle. Feely or Keely, he thought, by the tip of a blue hood sticking out at the top. Most likely Feely, he thought, by the tip of a long nose poking out of the winding threads. He managed, by leaning over, to cut most of the strong sticky threads that bound him round, and then, sure enough, with a kick and a struggle, most of Feely emerged. I'm afraid Bilbo actually laughed at the sight of him jerking his stiff arms and legs as he danced on the spider string under his armpits. Just like one of those funny toys bobbing on a wire. Somehow or other, Feely was got onto the branch, and then he did his best to help the hobbit, although he was feeling very sick and ill from spider poison, and from hanging most of the night and the next day wound round and round with only his nose to breathe through. It took him ages to get the beastly stuff out of his eyes and eyebrows, and as for his beard, he had to cut most of it off. Well, between them they started to haul up first one dwarf and then another, and slash them free. None of them were better off than Feely, and some of them were worse. Some had hardly been able to breathe at all. Long noses are sometimes useful, you see. And some had been more poisoned. In this way they rescued Keeley, Beefer, Bofa, Dory, and Nori. Poor old Bomber was so exhausted. He was the fattest and had been constantly pinched and poked that he just rolled off the branch and fell plop onto the ground, fortunately onto leaves, and lay there. But there were still five dwarves hanging at the end of the branch when the spiders began to come back, more full of rage than ever. Bilbo immediately went to the end of the branch nearest the tree trunk and kept back those that crawled up. He'd taken off his ring when he rescued Feely and forgotten to put it on again. So now they all began to splutter and hiss. Now we see you, you nasty little creature. We will eat you and leave your bones and skin hanging on a tree. Oh, he's got a sting, has he? 
Well, we'll get him all the same, and then we'll hang him head downwards for a day or two. While this was going on, the other dwarves were working at the rest of the captives, and cutting at the threads with their knives. Soon all would be free, though it was not clear what would happen after that. The spiders had caught them pretty easily the night before, but that had been unawares and in the dark. This time there looked like being a horrible battle. Suddenly Bilbo noticed that some of the spiders had gathered round old Bomber off the floor, and had tied him up again and were dragging him away. He gave a shout and slashed at the spiders in front of him. They quickly gave way and he scrambled and fell down the tree right into the middle of those on the ground. His little sword was something new in the way of stings for them. How it darted to and fro. It shone with delight as he stabbed at them. Half a dozen were killed before the rest drew off and left Bomber to Bilbo. Come down, come down, he shouted to the dwarves on the branch. Don't stay up there and be netted. For he saw spiders swarming up all the neighbouring trees and crawling along the boughs above the heads of the dwarves. Down the dwarves scrambled or jumped or dropped, eleven all in a heap, most of them very shaky and little use on their legs. There they were at last, twelve of them counting poor old Bomber, who was being propped up on either side by his cousin Beefer and his brother Bofa. And Bilbo was dancing about and waving his sting, and hundreds of angry spiders were goggling at them all round and about and above. It looked pretty hopeless. Then the battle began. Some of the dwarves had knives, and some had sticks, and all of them could get at stones, and Bilbo had his elvish dagger. Again and again the spiders were beaten off, and many of them were killed, but it could not go on for long. Bilbo was nearly tired out, only four of the dwarves were able to stand firmly, and soon they would all be overpowered like weary flies. Already the spiders were beginning to weave their webs all round them again from tree to tree. In the end, Bilbo could think of no plan except to let the dwarves into the secret of his ring. He was rather sorry about it, but it could not be helped. I'm going to disappear, he said. I shall draw the spiders off if I can, and you must keep together and make in the opposite direction. To the left there, that's more or less the way towards the place where we last saw the elf fires. It was difficult to get them to understand, what with their dizzy heads, and the shouts, and the whacking of sticks and the throwing of stones, but at last Bilbo felt he could delay no longer. The spiders were drawing their circle ever closer. He suddenly slipped on his ring, and to the great astonishment of the dwarves, he vanished. Soon there came the sound of lazy lob and attercop from among the trees away on the right, that upset the spiders greatly. They stopped advancing, and some went off in the direction of the voice. Atacop made them so angry that they lost their wits. Then Balin, who had grasped Bilbo's plan better than the rest, led an attack. The dwarves huddled together in a knot, and sending a shower of stones, they drove at the spiders on the left and burst through the ring. Away behind them now, the shouting and singing suddenly stopped. Hoping desperately that Bilbo had not been caught, the dwarves went on. Not fast enough, though. They were sick and weary, and they could not go much better than a hobble and a wobble, though many of the spiders were close behind. 
Every now and then they had to turn and fight the creatures that were overtaking them, and already some spiders were in the trees above them and throwing down their long, clinging threads. Things were looking pretty bad again, when suddenly Bilbo reappeared, and charged into the astonished spiders unexpectedly from the side. "'Go on! Go on!' he shouted. "'I'll do the stinging!' And he did. He darted backwards and forwards, slashing at spider threads, hacking at their legs and stabbing at their fat bodies if they came too near. The spiders swelled with rage, and spluttered and frothed, and hissed out horrible curses. But they had become mortally afraid of Sting, and dared not come very near, now that it had come back. So curse as they would, their prey moved slowly but steadily away. It was a most terrible business and seemed to take hours. But at last, just when Bilbo felt that he could not lift his hand for a single stroke more, the spiders suddenly gave it up and followed them no more, but went back disappointed to their dark colony. The dwarves then noticed that they had come to the edge of a ring where elf fires had been. Whether it was one of those they had seen the night before they could not tell, but it seemed that some good magic lingered in such spots which the spiders did not like. At any rate, here the light was greener, and the boughs less thick and threatening, and they had a chance to rest and draw breath. There they lay for some time, puffing and panting, but very soon they began to ask questions. They had to have the whole vanishing business carefully explained, and the finding of the ring interested them so much that for a while they forgot their own troubles, Barlin, in particular, insisted on having the Gollum story, riddles and all, told all over again, with the ring in its proper place. But after a time, the light began to fail. And then other questions were asked. Where were they? And where was their path? And where was there any food? And what were they going to do next? These questions they asked over and over again. And it was from little Bilbo that they seemed to expect to get the answers. From which you can see that they had changed their opinion of Mr. Baggins very much, and had begun to have a great respect for him, as Gandalf had said they would. Indeed, they really expected him to think of some wonderful plan for helping them, and were not merely grumbling. They knew only too well that they would soon all have been dead, if it had not been for the Hobbit, and they thanked him many times. Some of them even got up and bowed right to the ground before him, though they fell over with the effort and could not get on their legs again for some time. Knowing the truth about the vanishing did not lessen their opinion of Bilbo at all, for they saw that he had some wits, as well as luck and a magic ring, and all three are very useful possessions. In fact, they praised him so much that Bilbo began to feel there really was something of a bold adventure about himself after all, though he would have felt a lot bolder still if there had been anything to eat. But there was nothing, nothing at all, and none of them were fit to go and look for anything, or to search for the lost path. The lost path. No other idea would come into Bilbo's tired head. He just sat staring in front of him at the endless trees, and after a while they all felt silent again. All except Barlin. Long after the others had stopped talking and shut their eyes, he kept on muttering and chuckling to himself. Gollum. Well, I'm blessed. So that's how he sneaked past me, is it? Now I know. 
Just crept quietly along, did you, Mr. Baggins? Buttons all over the doorstep. Good old Bilbo. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bo, Bo. And then he fell asleep. And there was complete silence for a long while. All of a sudden, Dwalin opened an eye and looked round at them. Where's Thorin? he asked. It was a terrible shock. Of course, there were only thirteen of them, twelve dwarves and the hobbit. Where indeed was Thorin? They wondered what evil fate had befallen him, magic or dark monsters, and shuddered as they lay lost in the forest. There they dropped off one by one into uncomfortable sleep, full of horrible dreams, as evening wore to black night. And there we must leave them for the present, too sick and weary to set guards or to take turns at watching. Thorin had been caught much faster than they had. You remember Bilbo falling like a log into sleep as he stepped into a circle of light. The next time it had been Thorin who stepped forward, and as the lights went out he fell like a stone enchanted. All the noise of the dwarves lost in the night, their cries as the spiders caught them and bound them, and all the sounds of the battle next day had passed over him unheard. Then the wood elves had come to him, and bound him, and carried him away. The feasting people were wood elves, of course. These are not wicked folk. If they have a fault, it is distrust of strangers. Though their magic was strong, even in those days they were wary. They differed from the High Elves of the West, and were more dangerous and less wise. For most of them, together with their scattered relations in the hills and mountains, were descended from the ancient tribes that never went to fairy in the West. There the Light Elves and the Deep Elves and the Sea Elves went and lived for ages, and grew fairer and wiser and more learned, and invented their magic and their cunning craft in the making of beautiful and marvellous things before some came back into the wide world. In the wide world the wood elves lingered in the twilight of our sun and moon, but loved best the stars, and they wandered in the great forests that grew tall in lands that are now lost. They dwelt most often by the edges of the woods, from which they could escape at times to hunt, or to ride and run over the open lands by moonlight or starlight, and after the coming of men they took ever more and more to the gloaming and the dusk. Still elves they were, and remain, and that is good people. In a great cave some miles within the edge of Mirkwood, on its eastern side, there lived at this time their greatest king. Before his huge doors of stone, a river ran out of the heights of the forest and flowed on and out into the marshes at the feet of the high wooded lands. This great cave, from which countless smaller ones opened out on every side, wound far underground, and had many passages and wide halls. But it was lighter and more wholesome than any goblin dwelling, and neither so deep nor so dangerous. In fact, the subjects of the king mostly lived and hunted in the open woods, and had houses or huts on the ground and in the branches. The beeches were their favourite trees. The king's cave was his palace, and the strong place of his treasure, and the fortress of his people against their enemies. 
It was also the dungeon of his prisoners. So to the cave they dragged Thorin. Not too gently, for they did not love dwarves, and thought he was an enemy. In ancient days they had had wars with some of the dwarves, whom they accused of stealing their treasure. It's only fair to say that the dwarves gave a different account, and that they only took what was their due, for the elf king had bargained with them to shape his raw gold and silver, and had afterwards refused to give them their pay. If the elf king had a weakness, it was for treasure, especially for silver and white gems, and though his hoard was rich, he was ever eager for more, since he had not yet as great a treasure as other elf lords of old. His people neither mined nor worked metals or jewels, nor did they bother much with trade or with tilling the earth. All this was well known to every dwarf, though Thorin's family had had nothing to do with the old quarrel I've spoken of. Consequently, Thorin was angry at their treatment of him. When they took their spell off him and he came to his senses, and also he was determined that no word of gold or jewels should be dragged out of him. The king looked sternly on Thorin, when he was brought before him, and asked him many questions, but Thorin would only say that he was starving. Why did you and your folk three times try to attack my people at their merrymaking? asked the king. We did not attack them, answered Thorin. We came to beg, because we were starving. Where are your friends now, and what are they doing? I don't know, but I expect starving in the forest. What were you doing in the forest? Looking for food and drink, because we were starving. But what brought you into the forest at all? asked the king angrily. At that, Thorin shut his mouth, and would not say another word. Very well, said the king. Take him away and keep him safe, until he feels inclined to tell the truth, even if he waits a hundred years. Then the elves put thongs on him, and shut him in one of the inmost caves with strong wooden doors, and left him. They gave him food and drink, plenty of both, if not very fine, for wood elves were not goblins, and were reasonably well behaved even to their worst enemies, when they captured them. The giant spiders were the only living things that they had no mercy upon. There in the king's dungeon poor Thorin lay, and after he had got over his thankfulness for bread and meat and water, he began to wonder what had become of his unfortunate friends. It was not very long before he discovered. But that belongs to the next chapter, and the beginning of another adventure, in which the Hobbit again showed his usefulness. <laughs> <laughs>